You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, recently you got to go to the Stu Hunter Conference, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how it went. How did it go? What was going on there? It's statisticians, right? Thinking about machine learning and artificial intelligence and stuff? Well, I think statisticians thinking about statistics, really. But they're th- they're, the reason I was invited uh, was that they wanted to do a bit of thinking about that. No, it was a really interesting meeting, a lovely meeting of... I don't know, maybe around 60 people. Really interesting format. So the format was basically two speakers a day. And each talk was an hour and a half long, followed by an hour and a half discussion. And the discussion was your classic statistics style. They've read your paper beforehand, and they give us a formal 15 minutes to respondents. And then you respond to the respondents. And then uh, open it up to the audience so it's a sort of three-day conference but you only have six speakers and a a heavy um, emphasis on industrial statistics Um, and Stu Hunter himself is there he's someone that uh, you know has co-authored books with George Box and all these sort of things and in my understanding is that you know it's in the spirit of the things he's interested in which is moving from I mean we had a someone like David Banks there who's a leading Bayesian statistician you know and I would personally think of us as a mathematical statistician, but we had sort of industrial statisticians there. Um, We had a a really interesting um, talk from someone from Gore, the people that make Gore-Tech, and he was like a leading statistician guy called Willis Jensen, which was whether statistics equals analytics. And that triggered a very interesting debate around sort of the, the data science, analytics, statistics, machine learners. There was a sense I felt a little bit like um, the sort of alien in the room a bit because there's this, I think there's a sense in the statistics community, which I can totally understand that that we've run away with their ball, you know, that um, they had a ball, they were playing nicely in the corner and the big machine learning bully came and grabbed it, said, it's eight sides now, ran off. And then like, and, and everyone in the playground now wants to do it. And I think that the part of the, certainly also my talk um, was on issues around deploying data-driven systems. And so it, it came through in the discussion around my talk as well. I mean, to, and my answer is, well, you know, we need the statisticians to be so deeply engaged in in data science. But an interesting theme that emerges is, I think it's quite hard for statisticians to scale in the way that computer scientists can. So if a computer scientist understands a statistical technique, they can sort of code it up and deploy it very rapidly at large scale. Whereas a statistician, uh, if they do code in a sort of more language style way, it might often be an R, which is harder to deploy in production. And the tradition in statistics, actually, Willis Jensen put it in a nice way. He sort of said it's like... um, in statistics, the tradition is to show for people around, like you have the statistician, they need to be there operating with the data. So the statistician as chauffeur. And what his thought was, was, you know, we need to maybe move to a situation where we're giving people the keys to their own car, which is, I think, more what's going on in machine learning. But there's a lot of danger associated with that. And we're seeing all that emerge too around fairness, interpretability, deployability, and and whether people have the depth of statistical understanding to be trusted to drive the car. You know, did they pass their driving test? And 
you do sort of sense the from the statistician side that there's a lot of comments and sort of like there was these bits where people were saying, I knew a machine learner and he knew nothing about, you know, uh, the power studies or, you know, I knew a machine learner who didn't know what a hypothesis test was. And I'm like, well, because of course anyone can be a machine learner. There's no qualification. And, you know, and so I, I think, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for what that means. And, and I understand, totally get where people are coming from. But the converse is there are a lot of machine learners who have a lot of understanding about this. But it's just, it's an indication of a field in flux. I do think that, and, but, but we really need the statisticians. To me, data science, which was a term we talked about a lot, so data science is like the garden where statisticians and computer scientists play happily together with the same ball, you know, talking to each other in the same language, you know, skipping around in the sunlight. It's sort of a walled garden with sort of roses. And I think that there was a sense among some, not all of the statisticians, and some of the statisticians would be right aligned with me there, is that data science was the garden of the statistics, of, the, of statistics, and now there's these sort of bullies wandering around it. And, and I get that, but a lot of this is about just different communities having to come together and get to understand each other more. So conferences like the Stu Hunter are really about that. And, and it's better done in small groups. It's not best done over Twitter. It's one of those other things. Again, I, I go on about Twitter too much, but it's certainly not best done over Twitter. It's best done under small groups where you get a chance to chat in the evening, where you get a chance to chat over lunch, hear what people are doing, what the issues they're facing, what motivates them. And and the Stu Hunter was, was, was like that. It was just such a great group of people and you know even when they disagreed then the, you know the the immediate instinct is you disagree with someone chat with them over coffee and find out where they were really coming from because you you find that the source of your disagreement is just a different perspective on the world and i love that that's my favorite type of meeting but but it is how do we scale it at the speed to to develop that understanding quickly part of me thinks i mean here's here's something that worked very well in computational biology so so people are talking about running programs together running masters programs so on and so forth what we saw in computational biology is people did that for sure so people were able to do masters in bioinformatics because i always think of computational biology and bioinformatics as the model because say like 17 years ago basically people turned up with sequencing and data analysis in a field where you know, to caricature it, people do biology if they want to be a scientist but don't like maths. And and then the mathematicians sort of turned up. So there was a sort of interesting issue. And, of course, you already had uh, statisticians present in the field and so on and so forth. Very rapid changes. People launched a lot of master's courses, try and teach people what to do. I think all that's good. But one of the things that was very, very powerful in my mind was students that were co-supervised by, say, a computer scientist and a biologist or a mathematician and a biologist. Because these people rapidly become the next generation of supervisors. You know, everyone wants to do everything too quickly. This won't be fixed in 18 months. I'm sorry, it just won't. The amazing thing for me now is I'm at this period in my career where like there's people who I remember being young students who are now leading voices in the community, right? What's amazing about it is, of course, that they came through a different environment. If they came through in computational biology, they may have been supervised by, you know, me or equivalent of me or someone else and simultaneously a biological supervisor. They are the, you know, we reproduce intellectually much more rapidly than we reproduce um, genetically. So that means that you can change quite quickly 
with a new generation of people coming through, as long as you give them voice, as long as you're allowing them to stand up and say what they want to say. And, and I saw that for sure at the Stu Hunter. I mean, certainly some of the older statisticians were very welcoming of these ideas, very open to these ideas as well. But the ones that, to my sense, really get it, I mean, get it in terms of not just understand that, that something needs fixing, but understand how to fix it and understand the mentalities of both sides are very often the ones that have come through with a sort of supervision by the more senior people who know that you need to do that. So, you know, I think PhD students being supervised across stats and computer science departments is, is just an excellent idea, particularly if you can center it around a project where you're trying to solve a real problem, because real problems have this knack of not being solvable by one single technique. You know, they, they tend to be a real problem, needs you to bring in the expertise from the computer scientist, the statistician, the applied mathematician, the engineer, and everything else. And then you start really seeing the value of the different ways of thinking, and then you'll just get a new generation will drive things forward. I hope, I hope. Well, we will have a link to the Stu Hunter conferences, as many of the links to the conferences as we can find up on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Our listener question this week is about summer schools. I'm seeing a lot of advertisements for summer schools popping up. Machine learning, artificial intelligence, deep learning, reinforcement learning. How do I know which ones are good and which ones should I attend? And Neil, um, summer schools are something that we've talked a lot about on this show before. And I don't know if we can sort of say which ones are good or which ones are bad, but we can definitely talk about some that we have had experience with. And one of the ones that I am familiar with that uh, I think looks like a really interesting program this year is the Deep Learning Reinforcement Summer School. And that's taking place at Amy in Edmonton this year, and that's the D-L-R-L-S-S. And Amy is one of the centers of excellence for artificial intelligence, machine learning, that's part of the CIFAR pan-Canadian strategy, the other two being the Vector Institute in Toronto and um, Mila in Montreal. And it just looks like it's it's really going to be interesting. The, the same summer school was held in Toronto last year, and now it's moving out to, to Amy and where we have, you know, Rich Sutton is one of the amazing people who's going to be a part of that. And so I think at this one, you're going to have a lot of focus on the reinforcement learning stuff that that should be very strong in particular. One of the things about summer schools in general is that it's like a great mode and it's a great model for not only um, learning about a lot of the new techniques and work that's going on, but also getting to meet people and getting to spend time with people, creating connections and creating collaborations with people who are also interested in the same ideas that you are. I totally agree. I mean, and when it comes to deciding which ones to go to, many of these summer schools, including the DR, uh, DLRL summer school, will have videos of old schools where you can get a sense of what the lectures are like. I presume, I mean, one challenge with these schools now is the number of applications they have to the schools means that they can, certainly ones which are close, say, in North America, easy to get to from where there's a lot of researchers, will either tend to have a lot of people in or have form of, some form of selection to reduce the numbers. Uh, of course, it's great if it, there's a lot of if you can get in easily and a lot of people are allowed to go because, you know, then you're more guaranteed to go. But at the same time, a summer school with about with a fewer with fewer people can be an amazing experience for meeting people that you will maintain as contacts for like the whole of your um, career, like a, 
I think Ferenc Hussar was making this point at the um, Stellenbosch Summer School of South Africa that so many of his contacts, I think, were from the Cambridge Summer School, uh, MLSS, like going way back. I don't even read the year. And I'm sitting there thinking, you were a student at the Cambridge Summer School? <laughs> Which just goes to that earlier point about how rapidly people move from sort of student to influencer. And, you know, this community of people that all knew each other from them. And Ferenc was talking about his bonds with people from that time. And I don't know, but my guess is that the smaller schools are easier to form those forms of relationships with because it can be a bit de-anonymizing if there's sort of 500 people in a school. But by the same token, the smaller schools must be becoming more selective. So I, I just think they're a great idea. The thing to look at is the speaker list, the video lectures, an interesting thing about schools is, I mean, also don't, don't be too, I, my favorite schools are the ones where there's actually fewer speakers speaking more because then you really hear the depth of everything they want to say. Um, but other people want to just see the diversity of different speakers speaking less and you can sort of gauge the number of speakers and how much they're speaking when you apply and, uh, also, the specific subject of the talks will vary school to school. So MLSS is the one that's been around longest, but these DLRL, I guess, are much more focused on the sort of specific techniques that making up uh, dominating in modern machine learning. Yeah, it, it very much depends on what your personal interest is. And one of the things that I find really interesting about this summer school is that you have to go to both parts, the deep learning and the reinforcement learning part. And I think that that will create a lot of interesting sort of cross communication, because even if you're not a practitioner with a particular tool set, then you can be able to sort of speak fluently with your collaborators about those tools and, and how you can use them. And I think just helps to build the foundations of those um, communication blocks. That also gives you longer to connect with people. I actually just come to think, you know, I, I met my wife at a summer school, right? So uh, they, they can be pretty interesting. So I, that was the machine learning and generalization summer school in 97 at um, Newton Institute. So you can't go to that. That applications have closed. But the, one of the interesting, it was two weeks and there was a weekend in the middle. Often the, the, the two week long events, certainly MLSS typically does, there's trips in the middle where you get to socialize. I remember hanging around with Rich Caruana there. I met him there. Now, the, an interesting thing about that summer school is of a different type of summer school. And I think these NATO advanced study ASI, they were called, schools were a bit like this. There's another well-known one uh, in held organized by Mike Jordan that was held in Ariche, where I think Mike Jordan met his wife on graphical models in Sicily the year before. Now, those schools were interesting because they weren't so much tutorial schools, but they were sort of more advanced topics. So you, you had what, each speaker had two sessions, but they were... My memory of them is that they weren't sort of going from scratch. This is a neural network. Welcome to a neural network. They were much more like, here's my latest research in this space. A long introduction to their latest research. I remember watching Jan LeCun at that school showing Lynette 5 with the video that you can find online of the sort of music in the background and it classifying digits, which I just found gobsmacking. It was, well, I wasn't to know that it was, it was, you know, convenets were on the way out, but I sort of, I thought convenets were super cool and kept wanting to work on them. But by the time they came back, I was doing something else. So, so that's that type of school is also interesting, but I think a bit different from the these schools where, where they're really trying to sort of go through the material you need to get yourself operational. You're less hearing from someone who's trying to give you a review of their area, their specific sub area that people are trying to give you a wider view on, on the field, which is great. 
Well, you can find more information about the CIFAR summer schools and about the ML summer school on our website, thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. And you can email us if you've got a question for the show at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet at us at T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Adrian Weller. He's Program Director for Artificial Intelligence and a Turing Fellow at the Alan Turing Institute in the UK. And when I got a chance to sit down and talk with him, we asked him the first question that we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? My background is, is maybe a little different to most of the other people that I think you have interviewed. I initially studied maths, mm-hmm. um, but then worked in finance for many years. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that and had a great time. And I was involved with groups that were always using some sort of quantitative methods, Hmm. but not exclusively quantitative methods. So also would actually talk to people and uh, try try to- (laughs) Interact with humans. Interact with humans, that's right. And try to help them in thinking about markets and and understand what they were up to. Mm -hmm. So I had a great time doing that for a while. Then later on, I went back to academia and did Mm. a PhD. My mother always thought that's what I should do and was wondering, what are you doing in finance? (laughs) But to be clear, I had a great time in finance. I do not think that there are only dark and bad people in finance. You can talk about that more if you like and and really enjoyed my time there. But then I did a PhD and really enjoyed that. I've always been very interested in issues around intelligence, human intelligence and artificial intelligence. Mm. So the PhD in machine learning at Columbia and then we moved back to the UK. So most of my career in finance was in the States, mostly in New York. Mm-hmm. And we moved back to the UK and I was really excited to be able to go back to Cambridge, which is where I was undergrad, and get a position in machine learning group there with Zoom Garamani and lots of other great folks. And I've been having a great time there since. And also have a role at the Turing Institute. Should mm-hmm. I talk about that now? Yes, or? please. Tell us what is the Turing. <laughs> yeah, good question. Good question. Uh, well, most people know who Alan Turing was, mm-hmm. very famous British computer scientist, great hero for mm. several reasons. First, as an amazing seminal founder of the field of computer science and practical computing, mm-hmm. but also was one of the leading people at Bletchley Park working on breaking the Enigma code. Yeah. So arguably was really critical in helping the whole saving the planet thing. Save yeah. the planet, at least, you know, m- uh, save millions of lives potentially in, yeah. in, in, uh, in the war effort. And there's actually a, one of the Enigma machines is on loan to the Turing Institute. So the Turing Institute, so Alan Turing now a, a British hero, although sadly he wasn't treated so well mm. when, when he was alive, but that's a whole separate story, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. The Turing Institute was founded in 2015 mm-hmm. to be the National Institute for Data Science. And there were six founding entities five universities, Oxford, Cambridge, UCL, Edinburgh, and Warwick, and also the funding agency, the EPSRC. Since then, the Institute has expanded somewhat. So from early this year, it's now the National Institute for Data Science and AI. Yeah. So that's um, an expansion that was embraced following a report by Wendy Hall and Jerome Presenti that Mm -hmm. you might have seen last year. It was Mm -hmm. a government commission report about AI in the UK. And also eight more universities have been added. If mm. you ask me, I think I'll remember them all. Do you want me to try or... Go for it. All great universities. If I forget anyone, then I apologize. They're great too, yes. yes. <laughs> Leeds, Manchester, Newcastle, Queen Mary, London, Bristol, Exeter, Birmingham, and one more. Sorry. No, it's okay. Okay, no. I apologize. Wherever we'll make sure one. it's in the show notes. <laughs> Good, yes. But all, all, all great, including the one that I'm sorry, I just forgot that. And also that we've had 
additional partners come in for the Institute, uh, some of whom came in very early. So GCHQ mm-hmm. and Lloyd's Register Foundation, which is the charity that owns Lloyd's of London, and various other partnerships, for example, recently with UCL Hospital, which mm-hmm. is which is great uh, because one of the new areas we're really excited about is healthcare. That's fantastic. Yes. And you are also recently the, the director, yes? With the expansion of the remit from data science, data science, and AI, mm-hmm. I was appointed as the new program director for AI mm-hmm. at the Turing Institute, which mm-hmm. is obviously a great honor and really exciting to work with all the fantastic people that, that we have there. And maybe I should clarify that there is a fourfold mission for the Turing. So one is research excellence, of course. Mm-hmm. Another is really trying to help UK companies embrace the technology and have an impact on the economy. Another is helping to educate the next generation of leaders in the space. And the fourth one is uh, contributing to thought leadership around the societal implications mm. of data science and AI. All of these are really interesting and really important topics. Yeah, definitely. And um, let's talk a little bit about the foundational research or the the encouragement of more research going on in this area. You have a paper with several of your collaborators at the Turing at ICML, which is uh, the Blind Justice paper. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Re- really exciting work. Let me tell you briefly about, about Blind Justice. I, th- I think it's a really interesting, uh, nice piece of work. It's, as you say, collaboration between several folks who came together at the Turing, but also people who are at University of Cambridge and UCL and MPI uh, in Sarbrook and Krishna Gamadi, who I've collaborated also on, on, on a bunch of other papers. All fantastic people, great people, and I'm glad you're going to get to see some of the other ones here. So the idea there is that increasingly, as institutions very appropriately are trying to do the right thing in mm-hmm. not being biased against people of particular backgrounds, gender, race, whatever, we, we see a bit of a dichotomy. Sometimes People may have seen this when they go to look at online ads for jobs, for example. Sometimes they'll say, in order to ensure that we are not biased against any any particular gender, say, we, uh, we of course, we don't want to hear anything about your gender, so don't tell right. us anything right. about it. Right. That's one view, and that makes some sense. On the other hand, when you think about it a little bit, you realize that often you might be able to infer things about someone's gender mm-hmm. from other statistics that you, uh, that you learn about them um, that just allow you to make a good guess about their gender. And so there have been a whole suite of methods developed to try to measure and mitigate those kinds of biases. And in order to do that, you actually need to have that gender information. Otherwise, you just you can't won't correct be able to do for that. It. Yeah. You, you can't measure, you can't correct. So it also often happens that when you go to one of these sites, instead of saying, don't tell us about your gender, they'll say, we really need to hear your gender so mm. that we can make sure that we're not biased. Mm-hmm. So there's this there's this uh, difficulty that, you know, which which way should you go? Which is the right way? And we tried to get the best of both worlds in this paper. So the idea of blind justice being like the lady justice wearing a blindfold, right. trying to meet out justice fairly without without examining where you're coming from, mm-hmm. or what kind of background you have. So the idea is that we took tools from secure multi-party computation, which is one technique that the, the privacy folks have been developing. Adre Gascon, you're going to speak mm-hmm. to, is kind mm-hmm. of our expert on those methods and doing great things and extended them a little bit to allow us to do certain sorts of constrained optimization, which mm-hmm. you need to do to implement fairness methods. Mm-hmm. So if you think about if you uh, if you just want to learn a classifier to optimize accuracy, you do whatever it is you want to do. But if you want to do it subject to the constraint that you require fairness according to sensitive attributes, right. like uh, gender or race, then you need to impose these constraints. And technically, that was a contribution in the paper to allow that kind of innovation. And then really the question was, well, how and how does it work in practice? And it turned out that it, that it does indeed enable, at least 
on some of the data sets we looked at, practical implementation, which is really nice. So you mm. can you can set up a system which will which which has the capability of checking if a model is fair or of actually even just learning the model uh, without getting the sensitive attributes in the clear. Mm, nice. That's yeah. fantastic. It seems yeah. like a huge step forward, especially around the applicability opportunities. I think it's nice. It, it's definitely a good step forward and the sort of step that I think we need to be thinking more about. Mm-hmm. Um, so that so a whole suite of really interesting work has been done by these folks in the, on the privacy side. And I think it's great to be able to bring that together with machine learning folks to to help us make progress, and mm. also particularly in, in this this fairness direction, which is you know rapidly yeah. emerging and a, a really important, exciting area for us. Yeah, and you lead a group at the Turing um, uh, around fairness. That's right. So we have a group um, which looks at technical aspects of fairness, transparency, and privacy at the mm-hmm. Turing. I should clarify that there are other groups at the Turing that are also doing really nice work looking at issues of ethics. For example, there's the Data Ethics Group, mm. uh, chaired by Luciano Floridi, and there's a group uh, run by Helen Margetz that looks at issues of uh, AI and policy. Mm. Um, so these are different groups, and all of us, of course, try to coordinate together. Right. Uh, there's lots of, lots of important things to think about. One of the things that I think is particularly important is to bring together experts from the technical side with ethicists, social scientists, folks who know about policy, people with broadly different uh, backgrounds so that we can all try to think together. We can communicate effectively about what's what's technically and legally feasible. Lawyer is also very important. And uh, think together as a society about what we want. So that that seems to be a question that lots of people are thinking about, how to better work with uh, subject area experts. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the the tremendous problem is doing that sort of translation, right, between fields. How have you found working with collaborators in the work that you're doing? I love it. And I think I think it's so important. We just need to do as much of it as we as we possibly can. So personally, I really enjoy it. I'm not sure if all the technical folks necessarily <laughs> initially enjoy interacting with all these different groups, but I, but I think many of them do actually. And I think it's it's really just so important. So these tools are changing all of our lives. These technologies are changing yeah. our lives and having real impact on the way that we do all sorts of things mm-hmm. in really important areas. Just to give a few examples, many of us uh, are used to doing, of course, doing internet search and being shown ads by companies. And, and we may think that that's relatively innocuous, but increasingly we're seeing the world through a sort of digital lens that's mediated by companies who are perhaps reasonably incentivized to make money, but the way they do that often is by showing us things that they know we'd like to click on. They're appealing to our short-term desire to click on those things. And although in a sense they're giving us what we want, uh, it may not be what we actually want in the long term for ourselves and may not be in the best interest of society. So that's one set of issues. But And then, then perhaps even more directly, algorithms are increasingly used to help choose which people are interviewed for jobs. Right. And perhaps even more so, even in criminal justice, particularly in the States, but also to some extent in, in the UK, algorithms are increasingly being used to help predict whether people will commit crimes in the future. Yeah, and that interestingly, yeah, yeah, recidivism. And that is interestingly used to help decide how long people are locked up for and whether or not they're granted parole. So these, these are obviously really important areas. And we need to think very carefully about whether we can trust these algorithms across society. Yeah, absolutely. Given the fact that, I mean, we're experiencing these huge impacts, what would be the piece of information that you would like the lay public to be able to carry around with them about the work going on <laughs> in the field around around fairness and interpretability and, I don't know. First, let me mention that in addition to the work 
at Turing, which is great. Mm. Um, I'm involved with another group, which is also great, the Leverhulme Center for the Future of Intelligence, yeah. um, which is in Cambridge and Oxford and Imperial and Berkeley, and thinks broadly about societal implications of AI. So um, that's another outlet for me to interact with with philosophers and uh, lawyers and other folks like that, which is which is so important. And there I lead a project on trust and transparency, which mm. is a very similar set of set of tools uh, or, or set of ideas. And actually that that I quite like that word of trust as being one kind of umbrella concept under which to think of different categories of measures that I that, or criteria that I think are important to think about. So a wise lady, Baroness Honora O'Neill, has talked quite a bit about trust and even uh, trust and transparency. She has a nice TED talk you mm-hmm. could listen to. Fantastic. And I like the direction that she takes in general thinking about trust. She says, well, people talk about the need for more trust in society. But we should be cautious. I mean, you can trust people or algorithms or entities perhaps too much. Yeah. And that can lead to harm perhaps just as much or even more than if you don't trust them enough. Right. So perhaps it's better to think about sensible, clear criteria of trustworthiness, mm. ways that we can try to be sure that an entity or a system is doing something which isn't going to harm or abuse us, but yeah. is sort of going to take care of us in a reasonable way. And I'd suggest that in the context of algorithmic systems, there are several categories that could be useful to think about. I'll, I'll start with ones which may sound familiar to, to some of you because we, we're happily seeing movement going in this direction. So fairness, accountability, and transparency. Mm-hmm. And you, you probably know about the FATML movement. Yeah, or yeah, FATSTAR. Yeah. We've, got a, we've got a FATML workshop here, which is great. And uh, there's a new FAT conference, which has been announced for mm-hmm. February. Again, just to clarify, FAT does not mean anything about body type. It's talking about <laughs> no. just an acronym for fairness, accountability, and transparency. And I know some people Maybe don't like the acronym, and people are, we're considering whether that name should be changed. But that's all it means here. ML is and, full of is is full of slightly uncomfortable acronyms. <laughs> you, whatever acronym you, you pick, you might offend yeah. someone. So you need to watch out. But, yeah. So by fairness, of course, fairness is, is a concept which all of us like the sound of. We all think things should be fair, but but it means can mean different things to different people in different contexts. Yeah. And we need to be a bit careful about that because otherwise. People like politicians can say, we want a fair country. And people think, ah, the politician means what I think is fair. And so I'm going to vote for this politician. Whereas that might not be exactly what the politician is thinking or intending to do. But at least so far in machine learning, typically what what it's been used for is to try to ensure that algorithms won't discriminate inappropriately against any particular individual or mm-hmm. subgroup. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're not biased against women or against people of a certain skin color or something like that. And of course, that's very important. And there are various ways to try to define that. And there's a lot potentially to talk about, but that's what we typically mean by by fairness. So accountability, really important, can mean various things. I suggest that one important set of ideas here is that if an algorithm is being, or if an algorithmic system is being deployed, we need to know who is deploying it. And that if something goes wrong, who can we hold accountable for it going wrong? Mm-hmm. As an example, we've talked about recidivism prediction and, and you may be familiar with the compass system that's yeah. deployed by um, North Point. If a judge chooses to use that system and something goes wrong, who's at fault there? Is it the judge or is it the company? And what, what exactly is going on? And I think it's really important that we should have some clear accountability when entities are using these algorithms, but ha- perhaps particularly with with uh, public entities. Mm. So at least we know that someone is Someone's put their neck on the line. Um, and so therefore, they're going to go into a lot of trouble to make sure that it's okay. Transparency can mean quite a lot of different things. It certainly includes what is typically called interpretability mm-hmm. of, of algorithmic systems. So as our machine learning approaches 
can become increasingly complicated, complex, often when using deep learning or other, or other methods, it can be difficult to really understand exactly how they're coming to the conclusions they come to, even if they may be quite accurate. And there are big, interesting questions we can talk about about whether we always need that kind of interpretability. Sometimes you may not need it. If, if we have algorithms which are performing really well and seem reliably to be, to be performing well, or even better, if we can guarantee that they will reliably perform well, then maybe we don't necessarily need to know exactly how they're operating. Mm, mm. But there are times when I think we really do want to understand, for example, in the criminal justice system. So yeah. if an algorithm tells me that I'm, I should go to jail for six years, I really want to understand, well, why? How did it come to that conclusion? <laughs> right. And did it follow a proper process? And if I don't think it followed a proper, proper process, I, I want to be able to challenge it. Right. So those are really important ideas. Around that, so in addition to these ideas of understanding how one particular system is operating, other wider concerns might be very important. For example, what's the provenance of the data that was used to train yeah. an algorithm? Can we trust that? Yeah. Might it have been tampered with? Right. That's really important. Or might there be some sort of selection bias in the kind of data that was put in there? Maybe it doesn't have much data about a particular group, and mm -hmm. therefore we can't rely that much on the outputs that it gives for that kind of group. And even more broadly, there's a phrase that people like to use, the socio-technical context. So, so how is the algorithm being used? As an example, a lot of attention has been placed on whether these recidivism prediction tools themselves might be biased or not. Mm -hmm. But how about what maybe we care about more, which is when you combine the judge, if a judge is making the decision with the system, with, with the algorithmic system, as a combination, is this now more or less biased than it was before, which mm. raises lots of interesting questions. So the, the tools which we're developing to measure bias in algorithmic systems, you could also use to look at humans. And I think this is this is actually a great theme that when we examine our technical systems, it can give us better tools to think about ourselves and our own yeah. bias, our own op opacity, things like that, which, which is great. Also very interesting to then think about the, the combination. How can we ensure that these tools are best helping humans make decisions, sometimes called IA, intelligence augmentation, rather than just AI. Mm -hmm. So those are some issues with transparency. Okay, so we've talked about FA and T for, uh, for those topics. But I think there are a bunch of others. Should I keep going? Please. So privacy, often very important. How can we respect people's privacy appropriately? Mm. Many exciting applications for machine learning for example, in healthcare, where we think we may be able to diagnose disease in, in scalable, wonderful new ways, uh, perhaps even cure disease if we could gather enough data. Yeah. But of course, people are reasonably concerned about privacy. So we need to make sure that, that those concerns are addressed. Security of systems. So if we're particularly if we're going to deploy systems out in the world in many different places, Internet of Things, what if someone hacks into that and could right. then do bad things? That's a, that's a concern. Safety, another concern. Of course, how can we be sure that our systems, particularly if they become increasingly autonomous, right. are going to perform safely and reliably even when they enter contexts, settings that they weren't really trained on, which mm. inevitably will happen right. with real world systems because you just can't expose them to every possibility. Autonomous vehicles might work well if it's a sunny day and there aren't many people on the roads, but right. what if it starts to rain and we get gray clouds? The conditions can change significantly. And how can we try to ensure that algorithms can deal with that. So they might switch to a say fallback mechanism or the whole suite of things we could we could we could get into if, if, if that's of interest. One more thing I'd mention, which I think is is really interesting uh, and tricky, is the idea that algorithms are influencing us in our lives. So mm -hmm. this gets back to a topic we talked about a bit earlier, that even through even in ways that might seem innocuous, for example, showing us different kinds of ads, or perhaps a little bit uh, a little bit more clearly the way that social media sites choose to show us which 
particular stories they think we'll like to click on. It's a bell jar of opinion. Yeah, yeah there are these ideas that maybe we're, we're entering social media filter bubbles or mm-hmm. echo chambers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that this may this may lead to a more divided society and that might not be good for us. Yeah, lots of stuff going on. I mean, lots of, yeah. lots of huge sort of much larger, I don't know, societal questions. And I think that, that a lot of people in the field who are experts in computer science ever thought that they would have to be thinking about. Well, I think it's important for all of us to think about as a society. I think the technical experts have a responsibility to explain what mm. is going on mm-hmm. so that we can all think together about, about what should be done. Of course, I don't think computer scientists should be the ones necessarily to make the decisions. Although there are some concerns that perhaps to some extent that is already happening because mm. to some extent, some of the bigger tech companies are having a significant degree of control, particularly around some of these topics, like what are the news stories that we're seeing? Right. And I think it is reasonable to question the extent of that control and whether that warrants some form of at least careful thought and potentially thinking about rules we may want to may want to implement or, or how should we deal with these issues are we, are we okay with it or or is this at a scale and level of degree of personalization that's a, of a concern so these algorithms are are certainly nudging us a little bit and are we okay with that are we okay with the idea that you can nudge vast numbers of people if you nudge a lot of people just a little bit you can have some significant macro effects you could swing elections for example so yeah these, these are big issues for us to think about and another reason i think it's um I actually think it's good to think about all these issues together if we can, although that's challenging, mm-hmm. is because often there are, there are trade-offs uh, when you think about how to set up a system. There may be trade-offs between these different aspects and also along with performance. So uh, in the technical community, we can help to sort of define the curve of, w- of where these trade-offs occur, and we can try to make that curve. We can shift it over to get better possible yeah. trade-offs. But where exactly we want to be along that curve is, of course, a question for society. Yeah, definitely. Recently, we saw the implementation of a official portfolio of thinking about the AI sector in the UK, which was huge and very exciting. But how have you seen, how is the field developing? How are you seeing it from, from your position? And what's the sort of relationship between academia and industry and these public-private groups in the UK right now? Great question. There's a lot to say about that. Overall, I'd say that I think the UK is being rather impressively thoughtful in addressing these issues, particularly at a time when you might think that the government would be necessarily focused exclusively perhaps on, on topics like Brexit. <laughs> yes. And of course, they, a lot of them are thinking about that and there are a lot of important issues there. But they've been really thoughtful for for a few years now about trying to think about the issues of, of AI and society and how we can try and address those carefully. Of course, other governments have done great things too. Canada is doing great things. France, lot, lots of people are doing not in any way saying that anyone's not and we should try and work together as much as we can. But in the UK, maybe I can just describe the scene of, of, of what sort of things have been going on. So I won't go back too far to bore too many people, but but there, there were some really useful, helpful reports that came out in the last couple of years. There was a Royal Society mm-hmm. British Academy report that came out on data management and use mm-hmm. that established some high-level principles about how we might want to ensure that humans can flourish in, in the digital age. One of the things that report recommended was setting up a stewardship body to mm. try to think carefully about the governance of these kinds of technologies. And I think that that's a it was a very good idea, and that was that has been embraced by the government. I mean, that idea was also recommended in the recent House of Lords review. Mm-hmm. I should mention there have also been several different select committees, which are particular groups of of, of parliamentarians, both in the Commons and in the Lords, 
the Lord's Select Committee on AI particularly has, has, I think, produced a very helpful and thoughtful report, but there are also select committees in the Commons and in the House of Lords on science and technology and various mm. various other groups that, that I think did a really good job of trying to solicit thoughtful feedback from experts across the country. The government has done several things recently. So they, did sh- they, they have set up this stewardship body, which is now the new Center for Data Ethics and Innovation. Mm-hmm. And they recently appointed the chairman of that, Roger Taylor. Mm. And it'll be really interesting to see how that develops. Uh, I think it's particularly good and challenging that although they've been talking for a while about governance of these technologies, which naturally you would think potentially could lead to wanting to actually do something right away, right. they've managed to refrain from doing that, which I think is really good and admirable. Mm. They've been really thoughtful and saying we need to think carefully, bring together a wide group of diverse experts to think about these issues, not just experts, but 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 be thinking about all the different stakeholder groups that are that are involved, consumer representatives, etc., to try and think carefully about what 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 do we really want and move forward thoughtfully, which I think is is really great. The government has also recently set up a new office for AI, mm. and they've appointed Sana Karagani as the leader. She seems to be doing a great job. So the UK government has different divisions, and uh, the Office for AI is a joint effort between one group, DCMS, which is generally involved in thinking, well, digital culture, media, and sport, and there's Bayes, which thinks about business and enterprise. I think it's very good that those two are are together. Mm. This idea of of how best to balance the needs for business and innovation with ethical principles is, I think, uh, really important and really great to be trying to combine those, as also evidence in the the name of the previous organization, Center for Data Ethics and Innovation. Yeah. How can we try and think about those together? Yeah. And they also set up a new AI council, which specifically is to bring together industry with government and academia. And they've started to appoint some wonderful people there, Tabitha Goldstorb mm. and uh, Demesis Habis from mm. DeepMind is, mm-hmm. is, is involved and Wendy Hall. So terrific people. And uh, I think this is really hopeful for thinking carefully about these issues in the UK. And as we see sort of more formal thinking from organized bodies that are trying to bring together universities and industry and everybody who's sort of a player in this, do you think that we will, I mean, we already, we've seen the the open letter on Ellis. Do you think we're going to see more sort of higher level organizations coming together? And, or are we going to have to sort of get our stuff together first as, as countries or regions or uh, smaller groups? It's a great question. I'm just going to mention one more UK before I go oh, forward because I yeah. forgot. I forgot to mention the uh, the new Ada Lovelace Institute, oh. uh, which has been established by the Nuffield Foundation, which did great work uh, earlier on bioethics, together with the Alan Turing Institute and the Royal Society and the British Academy and various other partners. So that's that's another important group that's recently come together. But thinking about the international efforts, I think it's wonderful that we are seeing groups forming together. Mm. What we all want to achieve. I hope is is to use these technologies for for the betterment of all of society, mm-hmm. and by working together, we're more likely to be able to achieve that. So it's great that we have friends and partners, and we're, we're trying to do this together. At the same time, of course, different countries have different ideas about exactly how to do it for themselves, right. and I think that's totally reasonable. And actually, it's not clear that anyone really knows exactly how you should set up rules, even if you knew exactly what, if, if, even if you could figure out what you wanted to achieve, right? which rules would be necessarily the right ones to get, get you there. You there. Yeah. And yeah. so it's actually useful that different countries are doing things a little bit differently and mm. we can learn from each other about what's working, what's working well in each place. It allows for a little bit more experimentation. That's right. Nice. Fantastic. Adrian, thank you so much. Thank you. Adrian Weller, Program Director for Artificial Intelligence at the Alan Turing Institute. Well, that's it for us this week on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.